Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. If you're into this stuff, please be sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. That really does help us. Today, we're going to talk about how information shapes society. And we have a repeat guest who writes fascinating books. Let's just say the most in-depth, the most interesting, the most comprehensive books about how data, information, and computing have shaped our modern world. Back again is Jim Cortada, who is a senior research fellow at the Charles Babbage Institute at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. He's formerly worked at IBM Corporation in a variety of sales, consulting, research, management, and executive positions. His research and writing have focused on the business history of information technology and on the role of information in modern societies. His new book, which we're going to focus on today, is called Birth of Modern Facts. It tells the story of how information has evolved since the mid-19th century. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. What are the major points you're making with your book? Several. Uh, First, we've created more information and different types of information in the last 150 years than probably all of humankind has created in the past. That's why we have the second industrial revolution, why we call ourselves a knowledge society or an information age. Because we've created not only a lot of new information, but we've also discovered a lot of information about our world. That's point number one. Point number two is become highly specialized. That's why we have academic disciplines, professions, and what have you. All of them use organized information in uh, ways that were not conceived of even 200 years ago. That's how we get to be an information society. It's organized by disciplines, ecosystems, professions, and it's become a tool more so than ever before. It's uh, more mathematical and it's very precise and experts dominate our world. All three of us are members of that cohort. The thing that I find most interesting is that we've been able to change a lot of it and add a lot of it because of key factors in our society. We could afford to create information beginning in the 18th century. The economy could afford it. Electricity came along in the mid-19th century, beginning with the telegraph and going to the telephone and radio and then TV and ultimately to computers. So that changed the nature of information. We got so much of it that we had to organize it. That's where the librarians came in and organized by topics. And then we were able to create all kinds of disciplines uh, from physics to economics and what have you worldwide. So this isn't just a U.S. conversation. And that's why today we know that we no longer have nine planets. We have billions of planets. Why we know the temperature uh, uh, of the oceans every second or so all over the world, whereas we didn't even 10, 15 years ago. So these are some of the findings that came out of this study. It's important because you cannot do your work in any discipline that I can think of or any profession today without consulting organized information. We would not have said that 200 years ago, but today you do. 
So those are some of the key findings. And it seems obvious to say that this history is important to understand because we're spending so much of our time discussing fake information, misinformation, conspiracy theories, cyber wars. But is there more to it than that? Yes, uh, I think so. For decades, the people who were the gatekeepers, the creators of information, were experts. And and we required the experts to go through certain uh, quality control things like going to college, applying practices of of the scientists, the scientific methods, validating uh, what they had to say. After the arrival uh, largely of the internet, anybody could go in and create knowledge, information, facts, whether true or not. So the quality control declined. It was so easy to put information out there that people were able to use it to uh, further their agendas. And so we have a lot of bad information out there at the same time that because it's so easy to use information, move it about and create it, it's also affecting such things as how we deal with uh, medical crises or wars. You have just look at what's going on in Ukraine right now with uh, cyber warfare. You would not have thought 20 years ago that that would have been so effective, but there it is. So there's a lot of quality issues out there. Also, the fragmentation of information is a huge problem uh, today. It's why artificial intelligence is increasingly becoming a useful tool to re-aggregate information. Now, what do I mean by that? As information increased in quantity throughout the 19th and first half of the 20th century, it got more difficult for somebody to know more than one field. After uh, World War II, it became more difficult even to know an entire field, such as all of physics or all of chemistry. So you, you specialize even further. So we have all these little silos. And there are gaps of information in between them. And how do you fill those gaps? Well, you're either going to fill them with rumors or novel research or fake facts, or you're going to use artificial intelligence to smash it together. That's why, for example, when you Google something, it's agnostic. It'll go to economics, political science, whatever, to, to get information that you want. That's a new world that we're entering. Reaggregating information again, which humans can't do yet. So we have fake facts, we have gaps, we have an attempt now to try and reaggregate information. So I talk a lot about that in this book, and will obviously in the next one, uh, the sequel, which will talk more about our issues that we have today. But it's gotten messy and it's huge. So. Jim, you know, what, one of the things that I think about with this, when you, when, you know, when everybody talks about misinformation or disinformation, you know, they're talking about the internet and, and some Yahoo on there is putting something up there. Mm-hmm. But I look at it in a much more uh, disturbing way uh, in the sense of if you look at a lot of the new evidence on, first of all, the amount of, of faked data on peer reviewed journals. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've been a peer reviewer and I've peer reviewed, and let's just be honest, that's not a, it's a lot looser than people think. Uh, Absolutely, <laughs> a lot looser. And, and then then you have what I think. Again, I'm going to sound, you know, you and I sound like old. I'll sound like an old fogey, but you know, when I got my PhD, there was a real, real expectation that you left your political views aside, you tried to get truth. 
I don't see that anymore in a lot of academics. So a good example of that is these economists, Piketty and Says, you know, Thomas Piketty and wrote that book, Capital. Mm-hmm. Everybody who talks about income inequality cites their study. Well, it turns out they made a mistake in their study. It turns out that they vastly overestimated growth of income inequality by making some mathematical errors and doing some. And they they ended up coming back and doing a revision Mm -hmm. three years later that said, oh, well, it turns out that the bottom actually didn't go down. They went up 30 percent, didn't go up as much as the richest, but it wasn't anywhere near as bad as they thought nobody cites that study. Even people like, like there's a New York Times economist who just constantly cites the original study, won't cite the new study that revised the work and showed the more accurate thing. So, you know, thoughts on that? We seem to be in a world where even if you can correct facts, they don't break through when they're the truer facts. It's very difficult. What you say is absolutely true. I've seen it in multiple disciplines as I was putting this book together and I had because I organized it by discipline, because that's the way people identify, you know. And I noticed the same thing. Uh, I, I would look at, for example, arguments that economists would have or political scientists. And uh, there'd be food fights, not only in the referee journals, but now increasingly in blogs and, of course, always at conferences. And, yeah, you you wonder, you can see people's agendas on their sleeves in the text. And, of course, in fairness to them, how do you leave a political point of view or worldview to one side and go completely neutral on the other? It's, it's difficult. It's, it's a messy border. Uh, let me give you a personal example of how this becomes messy. When I started looking at the history of information, I thought a lot of information was basically hardcore, non-negotiable, factual. I was born on September 7th. My birth certificate says that. My baptismal certificate says that. But if you were sitting in Australia, you'd say, well, no, Jim was born on, I think, the 8th. They're looking at their calendar, right? So information has gotten fuzzy, plastic, malleable, like silly putty to a certain extent. And that's legitimate. But on the other hand, if you stretch it too far, like silly putty, it'll break. You know, it'll become obvious that we have an agenda here. Now, Piketty is an interesting case study of where they had a point of view, uh, an agenda that they were exploring. That's fine. You know, if you're, for example, a fan of uh, a president, let's just pick a recent one, say Obama, you want to study things that Obama did well. That's fine. Okay. On the other hand, if you find that Obama didn't do well on something, you have a moral and ethical obligation to say, well, you know, he didn't quite make it across the finish line on whatever the issue is. That's objectivity within reason, right? In my case, uh, I found that you could find two people who would look at the same issue and come up with two radically different points of view. Now, was it based on the data? or point of view, it's gotten harder as I've gotten older to be as absolute about it. But I definitely see people both who are professionals, you know, experts with agendas on their sleeves more so than when I was a graduate student and a young a young person writing books. Uh, there seems to be some ethical 
looseness there that in some cases they know is wrong and in other cases they're just being sloppy. And I hate to say this, but I find that a lot of people who write books, make presentations, don't dig as deeply into the topic as they should. Let me just give you a personal example of what I mean. 2012, I published an 800-page book about how computers spread around the world. Up to that point, there were a couple of dozen books. There were 250 pages that talked about that issue. You know, all going global, information society. Everybody listening to this knows what I'm talking about there. But by digging deeper, I found the story to be quite different than what all the pundits were writing about. So if somebody double-checked Piketty's math, which a reviewer should have done, they might have uh, gone back and said, hey, Piketty, you've got some additional homework to do. Check out your spreadsheets. They're a little off. And by the way, talking about spreadsheets, I doubt anybody in the world has ever produced first draft spreadsheet on something and got it right. It's just, it doesn't happen. My concern, particularly when I was at IBM, is I'd have some 25-year-old staff person working for me bring in a spreadsheet, and they believe what was on the screen. And I'd have to say, eh, you know, that, that number ought to be about 1 million, not 10 million. Uh, how'd you get to 10 million? And they click, 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 and go, oops, excuse me, and redo it and come back down to 1 million. Well, that's because of how did I know that? Well, maybe it's gray hair experience. I don't know. But it just there's a tacit knowledge there. It's a, it's a chronic problem that you find in all fields. And I certainly found it working on this new book. Related to that is you have these intramural food fights within each d- discipline. I found no exceptions to that. There are genuine differences of points of view among the scholars and the experts. And then you have in there agendas, whether it's an industry that's trying to get uh, environmental controls changed or some food producer doesn't want certain regulations which would constrain their sale of of food. That's how uh, the FDA got formed well over a century ago to mitigate those kinds of issues. So it's sloppy. It's not always clean and easy, but it's uh, it exists all over the place. Now, a historian will tell you that that was always the case in 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and so on. But it almost didn't matter the further back you go because it involved a fewer number of people. Today, you can tweet something, and all of a sudden, you got 10 million people believing you. And you go, whoa, 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 that's, that's not the same as somebody... Uh, complaining about Erasmus uh, mouthing off, you know, 400 years ago, where only a couple hundred people are going to read them. So it's a big deal. So there's a great line by uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was, like, I think he was head of domestic policy for Nixon and then became a, a center, Democratic senator from New York in his own right. Uh, wonderful man. Yes. And he famously said, you are entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. That's correct. It seems like we're now in a world where you are entitled to your own facts. Uh, well, people say that, yes. People say that. Uh, and, and to your point about how, how messy this is, I see that all the time with our team where, heck, I saw it this morning. Uh, somebody had a spreadsheet and, and it had a number. And I'm like, 
They look at that number, tell me why it is impossible for that number to be correct. And they were just reporting the number that they had gotten from. Sure. And, but that number was wrong. I remember a few years ago, we were looking at data on broadband in states that the Federal Communications Commission publishes. And one of the measures was what share of businesses subscribe to broadband. And, uh, you know, it was in average state, let's say as most states, it was like, you know, 0.6 or 0.7. I was like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one state like North Dakota or South Dakota. It was 2.7. In other words, each company had 2.7 lines. Now, clearly this was not possible. It was, you know, just right. 40, 40, <laughs> 49 states are between, you know, 0.6 and 0.8. So I had my guy, uh, you know, call up the FCC and they said, I'm sorry, but this is the data they reported. This is the data we're going to publish. And so you just have these errors that creep in at various places. And, and then you end up with a report that if we hadn't, you know, we, we weren't going to report that number. Uh, but you can imagine, oh, North Dakota or South Dakota is like is like the best state ever. So how do you think about it seems like you have two questions, you have two questions. And, and maybe even in the digital world, it's harder because there's there's more possibility of errors because uh, it keeps getting migrated and moved into a chart, into a spreadsheet. So you have that problem. And then the other problem we just talked about is people who are convinced that their take on the data, like the Piketty part, or there's a big debate in the U.S. about has manufacturing output gone up or down and all. And, and you know, the vast majority of people who should know better, they look at only the top line number as opposed to the 18 different industries underneath, which is where you find out why there are real problems, why the top line number doesn't work. The detail. But they don't either want to be bothered or they don't want the true answer. So I don't know. Are we just sort of stuck with that forever, Jim? Or is, do you have any opti- optimism to share with us? Well, the fact that you've got so many people involved in discussing any issue that you choose means that you will have more eyeballs staring at a topic and say, oh, contraire, the data is different. And you see that a lot in science, the heart of the, the STEM fields, because there's more rigor there. The, the more you move into my world of the social sciences and the humanities, the fuzzier and the squishier the data becomes and you have the issue of precision, too. Uh, if you're using math, it helps. If you're using sensors, it helps. Mathematics, of course, if you think of it as a language. And by the way, I wish somebody had told me that when I was around 12 years old. I would have gotten math a lot better. If you think of it as a language with its own grammar and vocabulary and so on, you, you can understand the role of precision more. And, and so the debates can get a little bit more clarified. But you do get some genuine uh, discontinuities. I think you and I had talked about this a number of years ago when I wrote a three-volume history of uh, how computers change the nature of work. I was working on this book in the 90s. The problem there was that the economists were saying famously, I don't see productivity increases of computers in the numbers. It's just not there. Solo and some of the others uh, said that. Yet at the time, that I was doing research and also working at IBM, trying to convince customers to use more computing and IT and what have you. People who were making multi-million dollar decisions were absolutely convinced that 
computing was helping them and had helped them in prior decades improve productivity. And I say, well, how did it do this? Because we got to, you want to optimize on whatever those learnings are. And, and they were very articulate. These are middle managers. They weren't PhDs in economics from Chicago or, or wherever. They, they were just good old boys that were running a data processing shop. And they, were, they had reduced inventory uh, cost by 15% because they had better inventory control numbers. And they reduced uh, shrinkage in retail operations by 5% because they were tracking their stuff better and so on. But nobody, but they weren't publishing that. So the economists uh, had the voice, and they were saying, well, we don't see uh, productivity in the data. Now, at the same time, uh, these managers and I and others, a lot of people, were talking to economists saying, hey, guys, you really need to go get new metrics. We understand you want to run with the numbers, so go get numbers. The BEA and other uh, uh, government agencies bought into that. And now we have lots of data that the economists trust and bless that shows that, in fact, productivity increased enormously with IT starting as early as the 1960s. So one my study that did that is hundreds of studies that have done that. That kind of phenomena is going on today. It continues to do that. But over time, information does get better, but it may not be synchronized with when the interest is there to see that better data. I know that sounds a little funky, but that's reality. And that's probably going on right now with such things as cybersecurity, privacy, all the conversations about regulating social media platforms. The Europeans are, are more intensely involved in that conversation than the Americans at the moment, but the Americans are borrowing from the Europeans. Uh, that might be a whole new podcast. That, that's a whole podcast. We'll have to have you back for it. <laughs> well, then, you, and you got folks like, uh, uh, oh, what's that lady's name? Uh, Sarah Lambden uh, just recently published a book on that issue. So you might want to consider uh, inviting her. I think her book just came out the last few weeks, Data Cartels. But uh, the point is, and, and there are dozens of books like that, you know, that look at privacy issues. Zuboff is another one and so on. But the point is that... We try not, we try not to look at, at Zuboff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she, she's out there and people are... You know, she's out there and everybody goes to... The just Zuboff. like Piketty. Just like Piketty is out there. Yeah, every, everybody everybody loves uh, Zuboff because she exaggerates and she makes it black and white, and that's what people people eat that stuff up. Yeah, exactly. But with one more minute to go, we should close on your book. <laughs> yeah, uh, the conversation uh, about disparate forms of uh, of evidence uh, exists there. My feeling is that in aggregate, in general, over time, the quality of evidence improved. My bigger issue is, is that evidence uh, being used in ways that are, I don't know, from my point of view, morally or ethically, or from a sound business point of view, the most optimal, the most efficient. And I think we all struggle with that. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're in a large corporation or a small company, 
whether you're a, a priest, a scholar, what have you, I think we all have to deal with that. And we started this conversation by my saying that uh, we have reached a point in society, or have been here for close to a century, where you really don't want to form opinions or take action or decisions without consulting some body of organized information. I use the phrase organized information. I think it's it's a good term to use. Otherwise, it's just to quote a uh, a, a Princeton philosopher, then it's just bovine sustenance. Jim, we completely agree with you that the world is one where you have to organize, consult organized information. And um, our advice is there's only one source for organized information on tech policy, and that's ITIF. Uh, everything, <laughs> everything else is second rate. Well, you know, and, and we laugh about it, but uh, actually it's a true statement. I mean, whether it's my grandsons that I'm teaching how to how to vet information or, or folks like who listen to your podcast, Clearly, one of the things you have to do is is use trusted sources. And everybody knows how to get the trusted sources once you define what it is. People who do their homework, people who make sure their math is right, people who have been doing it for a long time. It's one reason why uh, uh, when we were getting ready for this podcast, I said, remind me how long you folks have been in business. And you said 17 years. Well, that makes you a trusted source because in Washington, D.C., you would have been blown away years earlier. And so New York Times, I go to the New York Times. Uh, I'll go to uh, the Washington Post, uh, depending on which era we're in and all that and who's writing for it. Trusted sources are very, very important. It's absolutely critical. And I would not be on this podcast if you were not a trusted source. Let me just cut to the chase because I wouldn't want to be associated with a sleaze uh, operation because it, it could. The only thing I have is my reputation. I got to protect it because I don't want to embarrass my grandchildren when they come to my uh, funeral someday. Uh, Jackie, our new our new tagline would be ITIF. We're not a sleaze operation. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That'll be, that'll be where we go. So, well, I didn't uh, mean it quite that way, but yeah. No, I'm just teasing, Jim. It. Thank you, though, for, for the good words. Jim, thank you so much for being here. It was really great, and I've really enjoyed. I, I, I had do have uh, I do have your book, and I'm about halfway through it. So it's really an interesting book. I encourage everybody to pick up a copy. You you definitely will learn a lot, and it'll hopefully change the way you think about information and data. Well, thank you for inviting me on. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. We hope you'll continue to tune in. 